Well, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 16. And again, we are looking this morning at verses 16 through 24. So here we are in church, amen? Are we happy today? All right, I love to hear it. I can tell camp is still residual in this room. We enjoy being with the brothers and sisters in Christ, amen? And you're smiling and most of you are pretty upbeat and the music was great this morning, wasn't it? I love to worship with music, such a great, great part of worship. And most of you, I'm sure, are fighting the good fight in the faith. You're trying to live your Christian life with good courage. And you are, again, putting yourself under the authority of the Word. But this morning, I want to ask you a very penetrating question. And I want you to think honestly. What is your level of joy this morning? What is your level of joy? I don't mean right now in the presence of our church family or while we're in the fellowship of other believers. I mean when you leave this place today, when you are living in the daily grind of all that life throws at you, what is your level of joy? What is your level of joy when a loved one dies? When finances are slim, when there's trouble at work, when being a parent brings you to the brink of exhaustion, when your expectations are not met, or when you strive to do what's right and all of a sudden things just seem to go horribly wrong. How many of us have been in those situations? What is your level of joy? Do you have joy? If not, do you fight for joy? Do you even know how to fight for joy? You know, I am sure that for many of us who are here today, joy is a fruit of the Spirit that seems very elusive. And isn't it true that so many of life's circumstances just seem to suck the joy right out of us? We love the Lord. We desire to serve Him. We're active in ministry. We're disciplined in the faith. But isn't it true that there are times when we do all of this ministry, we do all of this Christian life with this emptiness inside of us? We look good on the outside, but on the inside, we feel like we're just going through the motions spiritually. And beloved, if we're not careful, we can easily justify looking for joy in all of the wrong places. For example, I want you to consider how the world looks for joy and happiness. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, former atheist C.S. Lewis offers insight as to how those enslaved to secular humanism have pursued after joy. And this is what he says. All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery is a long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. John Piper, commenting on Lewis's statement, adds this. He says, All sin from slavery to prostitution to racism to terrorism to extortion to the sparks that ignite world wars, all are driven by a desire for happiness and joy apart from God. The greatest hazard we face is not intellectual atheism denying that God exists. Our most desperate problem is affectional atheism, refusing to believe that God is the object of our greatest and most enduring joy. This is the heart of our foolishness. 
The fool speaks from the depths of his affections and longing and declares God is irrelevant. This is the affectional atheism that plagues every heart. Now certainly we know that the world at large, being in a state of utter depravity, seeks to find joy apart from God. But I want to postulate that for us as Christians, although we know God and love God, it is true at times, I believe, that we fall into this affectional atheism. It isn't that we deny God, but rather that we fail to see God as the truest source of our greatest and most enduring joy. And finding joy in God, beloved, is a joy that is definitely worth fighting for. This morning in our text in John chapter 16, Jesus is going to teach the disciples that to place their affections in anything or anyone else but him is to come up short on joy. And at a time when the disciples were exceedingly sorrowful, Jesus helps them to understand where true and lasting joy is to be found. And he assures them that this is a joy that can never be erased. It can never be negated by anything or anyone in this world. So in our text this morning, Jesus, by way of the disciples, is going to show us how we need to fight for joy. And in doing so, he lays down three key principles that he wants the disciples to remember in order to maintain their joy, even in the midst of the suffering and the sorrows of this world. And again, these are timeless truths for us to remember as well because we want to be able to say as Paul did in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now this morning, we are going to cover the first of these three principles and Lord willing, we'll cover the next two next week. But before we look into our passage, I want to give you some context in John chapter 16, we find Jesus near the end of his earthly ministry. He had just spent intense and personal intimate time with the disciples in what we know is the upper room discourse. The disciples, of course, were struggling to understand all that Jesus was telling them, and things were not going as they expected. Jesus informed them that he would be leaving them, he would be returning to the Father, and then he said in John 13, 36, that where I go, you cannot follow me. So the disciples were no doubt stunned by this, along with the many other things that Jesus told them in their time together in the upper room. Now in John's gospel, the upper room discourse runs through the end of chapter 14. And I want you to keep this in the back of your mind. But in John chapters 15 and 16, we now read about the events that took place as Jesus and the disciples were on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, where Jesus would be arrested. In chapter 15, Jesus spoke to the disciples about their relationship with him, that he would be the vine, that they were the branches. He spoke of how they were to love one another. But yet, in the midst of such tragic news and before the disciples could even catch their breath, Jesus stunned them again by telling them of the world's hatred for them. And Jesus prophesied to them that they would be persecuted and killed for his name's sake. And he told them that those who did kill them would think they were doing a great service to God. As we move into chapter 16, Jesus promises to send another helper, the Holy Spirit, who would abide with them and teach them all things and bring to their remembrance everything that Jesus said. He revealed how the Spirit would bear witness through them to convict the world of sin, 
righteousness and judgment. And all of this was going on rapid fire. Now put yourself, beloved, for a moment in the shoes of the disciples. How must they have felt at that moment? And remember, this revelation all came to them before the cross. So they had no idea what was ahead. And this would be a staggering amount of information for anyone to receive in one day. And it was overwhelming to the disciples. Because you see, at this point, they had no category to make sense of a Messiah who would abandon plans for an earthly kingdom. And they had even less understanding of a Messiah who would die, who would raise from the dead and abandon his people in place of another helper. They couldn't bear the thought of this. And this is why Jesus said in John 16, 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Listen, have any of you ever been so overwhelmed by news that you just couldn't process it all right away? Have you had people tell you things where you just, you just can't really react? It happened to me 48 years ago when I asked Gail to marry me and she said yes. <laughs> I still don't think I'm over that one. But we know what that is, don't we? We know when things may come in rapid fire, and especially if it's bad news or things that are trials or things we're struggling through, and we, we just can't absorb it. And this is where the disciples were right now. They could not receive everything that they were hearing. For the disciples, you see, things looked very bleak, very hopeless. Remember, for three years they had walked with the Master, and they had great expectations. I mean, sure, there were things that were rough at times, but think of the joy that they had when Jesus went into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, and they thought that he was finally going to usher in his kingdom. People were praising Jesus. They were giving glory to God. And now, wham, this, Jesus leaving. No earthly kingdom. No political or military changes whatsoever. And even worse was Jesus for telling these men what their fate would be. Oh, and by the way, guys, you're going to be hated by the world. You're going to be persecuted and killed for my name's sake. And all of this, even before, they had to endure the horrific shock of Jesus going to the cross to die. Now, I am sure that the last thing that the disciples were thinking about at this point was joy. Would you find this to be a joyful occasion? I don't think many of us would think there was much joy to be found. And yet, at a time when the disciples were most scared, most sorrowful, most afraid, most insecure, Jesus says, you know what, guys? I'm going to teach you about joy. I'm going to teach you about joy. Now, you would think that this would be the worst time to talk about joy. But for the disciples, this was the exact right time to talk about joy. Because you see, Jesus was about to teach the disciples that the very circumstances that were about to bring them immense sorrow would be the same circumstances that later on would bring them immeasurable joy. They would come to see the source of their mourning, namely the cross and Jesus' ascension to the Father leaving them. They would see that eventually as the source of great exultation and great joy. And thus, beloved, listen, when life throws us into a tailspin, when we feel the sorrows and the difficulties and the trials of this world sucking the joy right out of us, it is the exact lesson that we need as well. 
So again, Jesus shows through the disciples how we can fight for joy, even in the midst of the suffering and sorrows of this world. And as I mentioned previously, we're going to look at the first of three principles this morning. So the first key principle in fighting for joy is to remember what Jesus declared. We need to remember what Jesus declared. And we find that in verses 16 through 19. So please follow along as we read. Jesus said, A little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. And some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Now let's look at this a minute. We know that Jesus had frequently warned the disciples of his departure. He had given them enough insight and encouragement to face what was ahead. And with the promise of the Spirit's coming, Jesus assured the disciples that they would be equipped to bear up under future trials. And Jesus understood why this was necessary to tell them this, because they needed hope. We all need hope. Amen? Amen? We need hope. And Jesus wanted to give them hope. And I mean, we get this, don't we? We get this. People can endure a trial if they see the end. They can endure pain and suffering if they see that there is a purpose in it. And scripture is replete with examples that tell us this very thing. For example, in Romans chapter 5 verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. I want you to see in all these things that, listen, even though we're going through difficult things, God gives us an end. He gives us a reason. We see this very thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, where again Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. We see an end, don't we? We understand in Christ what the purpose of all this is. And then as we look down in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, Paul goes on to write, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will deliver us. There's joy right there. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And finally, I want to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. 
where Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need hope. The Bible is replete with those verses that give us hope. And biblical hope is rooted in our faithfulness in God. And in that faithfulness, as we put that faith in God, we find our joy. Now, what happens when man lacks hope? How many of you have ever felt you were in a hopeless situation? Anybody? Just, you know how you feel. It just, it paralyzes you, doesn't it? You just don't know where to go with it. Proverbs 13.12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Job 7.6 declares, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. The last thing that God wants for us is to be men and women of faith who lack hope. And we know that biblical hope is not, I hope this will happen or I hope that won't happen. It's the certainty of what God says, knowing that it will happen and knowing exactly what the end result will be. Now, Jesus revealed enough to the disciples really to give them hope. But they weren't there yet. They were still viewing things from their own self-centered perspective. And they simply could not process the information they were receiving at the pace that Jesus was giving it to them. And I think they really didn't want to process it. Remember, the disciples had lost everything. They had left everything to follow Jesus. And now, in fear, they probably began to wonder, hey, are these last three years wasted? I mean, do we just spend three years of our life with the Master only to have Him desert us and go away, and now we're stuck here, and what are we going to do? Was it all for naught? So Jesus makes a very important declaration. He says, look, I'm not abandoning you, nor am I forsaking you. He says, look, I am going to see you in a little while. And we read that in verse 16. And then I'm going to see you again. I'm going to see you, I'm going to be gone, and then I'm going to see you again. Now right off the bat, we run into a textual challenge here. There's no doubt as to the meaning of the opening phrase in verse 16, a little while and you will no longer see me. Jesus was hours away from being arrested. That would ultimately lead to his crucifixion. And of course, the disciples would no longer behold him because he was about to die. But it is the latter part of verse 16 which presents the difficulty because Jesus says there, and again, a little while and you will see me. So the question is, how long is the little while before Jesus would be seen again? Now, what makes this so difficult is this is a common phrase, and Jesus used this phrase often. And when he used this phrase, Jesus often used it to refer to different lengths of time. So, for example, in John chapter 7, verse 33, the little while he uses there refers to weeks. In John chapter 12, verse 35, the little while is just a matter of days. In John 13, 33, the little while amounts to a large amount of hours. So you see the difficulty. And there are three mainline interpretations given by theologians, and let me share them with you. D.A. Carson and R.C. Sproul interpret this verse as simply referring to Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to the disciples. In other words, those 40 days after his resurrection before he would ascend back to the Father. 
John Calvin, Gordon Ketty, William Hendrickson, and John MacArthur believe this little while is fulfilled when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This is what Howard Hendrickson explains. He says, Jesus had in mind the dispensation of the Spirit during which the Spirit would mightily display Jesus' works on earth so that through the eye of faith, the church would be able to see their author. Lastly, men like David Thomas and F.F. Bruce are persuaded that this little while is more figurative than literal and thus it refers to our seeing Christ when we return to glory. In other words, as we go to heaven when this present age comes to an end. So what are we to make of this? Well, if you're perplexed, you're in good company because the disciples didn't have a clue. Now certainly the disciples did see Jesus after his resurrection and before his ascension. And I would agree with this interpretation exclusively if it weren't for two things. First, seeing Jesus physically after his resurrection would certainly bring a measure of joy to the disciples, but the pain of his leaving again for his ascension would again give them the pain of separation. And secondly, after Jesus' resurrection, it was a strange time for the disciples. They did not have the closeness to Jesus they enjoyed while he was in the flesh. Remember, when he resurrected, they were in fear. They were confused. They didn't know what was happening. They had not yet experienced the spiritual oneness that would come to them after Pentecost. And so the joy they had during Jesus' resurrection, I think, was mixed with doubt and disappointment. In fact, think of the attitude of Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas? After Jesus' resurrection, the disciples told Thomas, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And what did Thomas say? Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. You know, Thomas was basically disappointed. And he basically came to the disciples and said, why are you guys trying to give me this mystical jargon? I'm the one that told you, if we go to Jerusalem with Jesus, he's going to die, we're going to die. He went to Jerusalem, he died. I told you this was going to happen, and now why are you doing this to me? I don't know that we'd have been much different than Thomas. Don't put me off with some kind of fairy tales. Thomas needed to see There's another interpretation of a little while that is said to refer to the end of the church age when at Christ's second advent he will be seen. But the problem that I have with this view is that it fails to apply the work of the Holy Spirit in and through the disciples regarding their earthly ministry. Jesus said in verse 20, your sorrow will be turned into joy. If Jesus simply meant joy at his second coming, then that would imply that there was no joy during the disciples' earthly ministry. And this would contradict everything that happened at Pentecost. Remember, after Pentecost, the disciples had great joy even in the midst of persecution. And therefore, I believe the most plausible interpretation is that the clause, a little while, refers to the time of Pentecost. And I think the phrase at the end of verse 17 supports this, where Jesus says, and again, a little while, and you will see me, notice this, because I go to the Father. And this falls in line, I believe, with the flow of the text, because what happened when Jesus went to the Father? He sent the Holy Spirit. 
And through the indwelling Holy Spirit, believers in Christ see Him as He is revealed through the Spirit. In fact, Romans 8, 9 tells us the Holy Spirit is the very Spirit of Christ. In Galatians 4, 6, we're assured that God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. And Jesus told us in Matthew 28, 20, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what are we to make of this? You know, in one sense, all of these interpretations are possible, aren't they? Jesus certainly was seen after his resurrection. He is seen from Pentecost on through the eyes of faith and through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And he will be seen face to face at his second advent. However, I believe contextually the added phrase a little while is primarily a reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, you have the right to disagree with me, and I won't pray an imprecatory prayer against you. But when you get to heaven, you'll see that I'm right. No, (laughs) pride goes before the fall, right? You know, I worry about what the Lord is going to say I really missed. Like, what were you thinking when you preached that? And I, you know, it seemed right at the time. But Arthur Pink, I think, summarizes this most clearly when he says, the disciples not seeing Jesus physically and spiritually was of short continuance, After a little while, only three days, he reappeared to them and then disappeared again for another little while from their bodily vision, though never more would they spiritually lose sight of their Lord and their God. Now, as we move forward, we see that Jesus' statement had quite an impact on the disciples. Notice again what we read in verses 17 through 19. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing that he is telling us a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father? So they were saying, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while, you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Now it's interesting to note, and I find this actually stunning, the disciples had not spoken to Jesus since Judas, and not Judas Iscariot, the other Judas, had asked Jesus why he wasn't disclosing himself to the world. And that was back in John chapter 14, 22. So the disciples did not ask Jesus anything about anything all the way back from John 14. And now here we are in 16 that he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and they finally break their silence. Jesus had given them, of course, an incredible amount of revelation, not only in the upper room, but also on the way to Gethsemane. And yet it was Jesus' words in John 16, 16 that prompted them to break their silence. But here's the stunning thing. They broke their silence, but they never questioned Jesus. They were talking amongst themselves. Do you find that odd? With all that they had known? I mean, how perplexing that they would talk among themselves, and yet they were reluctant to question Jesus openly. And it's not hard to understand why Jesus would have told them in John 16, 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. The disciples were having trouble, obviously, reconciling Jesus' statements here. Was he coming? Was he going? And here's the, what they were thinking. Well, if Jesus is leaving to establish the messianic kingdom, then why leave at all? 
Why not just establish it here? Why not just get this thing going? Conversely, if he wasn't establishing his kingdom, why come back at all? Why not just stay in heaven and be done with it? See, there was this fleshly thinking and the disciples' reasoning at the moment was not spiritual. They couldn't figure it out. And what was missing was a clear understanding of Christ's death for sinners, his resurrection, and their justification. They didn't know about that. Now, in one sense, we understand this, don't we? Because the disciples couldn't postulate supernatural knowledge. The cross, again, was yet future for them. But on the other hand, they certainly should have been more aware of what Jesus prophesied to them more than they were. They just weren't listening. On two prior occasions, Jesus had spoken to the disciples about being rejected by men, about being crucified, and about his resurrection. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, we read this. From the time Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. And we read this same account in Mark 8.31 and in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Three times this account is recorded in Scripture. But then Jesus told the disciples the same thing a second time. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, again we read this. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And we're told about the disciples, and they were deeply grieved. And this also is recorded in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. Luke chapter 9, verses 44 and 45. Now what I find so unbelievable about these two accounts is that we read, and they, the disciples, did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Now Jesus' predictions were pretty clear here, folks. He would be killed. He would rise again on the third day. What went wrong? Well, we know some of the things that went wrong. First of all, this did not fit the preconceptions the disciples had about Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom. This was a train wreck in their minds. This was like, no way can this be happening. They could not reconcile that this was the way it was going. And yet, they still did not ask him about it. Now, let me ask you a question and be honest about this. If I was stood up here today and I said, oh, by the way, folks, I'm going to die tomorrow, would any of you ask me about it? Or would you just go, well, Pastor Jackson, nice knowing you. Put in a good word for me. I mean, if I knew somebody was about to die, I would probably want to ask them about it. I mean, if I heard everything that Jesus said, I'd probably want to say, whoa, can we have like a summit meeting here? Because I'm not getting this. I'd want to ask you about it. But they didn't ask because it was probably too painful. They didn't want to contemplate it. How many of you have ever gotten news you don't want to hear? You know, la, 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 la. Somebody's about to tell you something. It's like, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. That's where they were, right there. And we might think Jesus is cruel. Then, you know, why would Jesus tell them such weighty things in the first place? Why didn't he just be quiet about it and go to the cross and send the Holy Spirit and then figure it out? 
I mean, why did he do this? He did this, beloved, to give them hope. To cement their joy. To make them realize that, look, I know what I'm telling you is hard for you to receive. But listen, I am not leaving you. I am not forsaking you. And I'm telling you this so that when you have to go through the horrific agony of seeing me crucified on the cross, you will look to the joy that will follow this. Listen. Disciples, whether by sight or whether by spirit, you will always be united with me and I will always be united with you. And here, beloved, I think is where we need to extract some personal application from these verses. I think through the disciples, we're able to glean two main reasons why we often fail to have joy. The first is this. I think so often we focus on the here and now that we fail to look past our present circumstances to the ultimate joy of being secure in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have everything, amen? You have everything. Would you say, well, you know, I'd give up Christ if I could just have a more comfortable life here. Anybody there? We have everything. But see, when Jesus told the disciples, in a little while you won't see me, and then in another little while you will see me, the disciples were focused on how long. And that's what we ask when we're in trouble, don't we? Well, how long? Years ago, I was in Idaho. I was water skiing. I was standing on a raft after I water skied. The boat came to pick me up. I went to step in the boat. The side of the boat was wet. And I stepped on the side of the boat, my foot slipped down, and I impaled it on a rope cleat. You talk about hurt. And I couldn't get it off the rope cleat. It was stuck on that. And rope cleats aren't real sharp. I thought the guy driving the boat was going to pass out. I said, don't look, just get me to shore. He gets me to shore, and there's a World War I nurse there that says, I can fix it up. Uh Uh-oh. She took a bottle of turpentine and poured it in the wound. Don't ever do that. I've never hit a woman, but that's the closest I've ever come. (laughs) If I could have stood up, she would have gone away with a black eye. Now understand that we're in the wilds of Idaho, right? There is nothing around. So we have to try to find a place, and I'm in agony. So we find this little remote clinic in the middle of the mountains, in the middle of nowhere, and I walk in there, and I meet the doctor, and he goes, oh, I used to be a carpenter in Chicago. Perfect. And don't ask me why, but in the gurney I was laying on in the treatment room, there was a big glass window to the hallway, and here's Gail and all my friends looking at me through the window. No privacy. And this doctor took out a hypodermic needle, and my wife's eyes just went, And then he handed me a block of wood. Typical for a carpenter. I said, what do you want me to do with this? He said, I want you to bite on it. He said, let me tell you, this is really going to hurt. And it did. He stuck that needle in the bottom of my foot. And I'll tell you, I would have slugged him if I could have gotten up. But you know what? I endured that because I realized that the results of getting treatment were inevitably what was going to make me feel better. It certainly wasn't something that I wanted to 
experience. But I didn't ask, well, how long is this going to last? What are the results? What are the results? And this is where the disciples weren't. Jesus promised the disciples that he would see them again, that he was not forsaking them. He wasn't wanting them to focus on their current circumstances, but on the results of everything that was going to happen to him. In fact, in three days, they would be joyful again as they saw him after his resurrection. But they couldn't look past the present with eyes of faith so as to embrace all that Jesus promised. Now, wouldn't you have thought that one of them might have said, hey, you know what? Wait a minute, guys. Hold on a minute. I think I remember that Jesus said, yes, he's going to be crucified, but I think he said something about rising again three days later. Would you think that through all of those guys that that might have come to their mind? Uh, Maybe, guys, we ought to hold on to that. Maybe we ought to see what happens in three days. We should hold on to that. That's what the master told us. But they didn't. Because you see, their joy was dependent on the here and now, being with Jesus as he was. But that joy quickly faded into sorrow when the circumstances of the disciples' life drastically changed. And beloved, I think we're often robbed of joy in this world for the same reason. You know, many times when trouble comes, we have a tendency to forget God, don't we? We default back to human reasoning, human wisdom, human will. And then focused on the difficulty, we take on the false notion that, God, you've abandoned me, and we cry out, God, where are you? How many have prayed that prayer? I know you have. You don't have to raise your hand. How could you let this happen? But Jesus said in Hebrews 13.5 that he would never leave us, never forsake us. We're told in Hebrews 12.2 that we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He saw the cross as the way to the crown. He didn't look at the here and now. He looked at the results. Paul could rejoice even as a prisoner chained to the praetorian guard. And listen, beloved, when difficulties and trials of life come, we need to learn to look beyond today. We need to look at our present circumstances and realize all that is ours in Christ. Does God ever abandon us? Yes or no? Yes or no? Yes or no? Okay, thank you. I like loud. I know that's hard for you to believe. When we get the difficulties and the trials of life, listen, we need to learn to look beyond today. We need to learn to look beyond our present circumstances. And when trials come, don't ask how long or what is the easiest way out of this. Look past the trial to what it might produce. What is God trying to accomplish by allowing this trial in my life? And ask the Lord to help you build endurance to keep a godly testimony through what God is teaching you and how a particular trial might work for your good and for the glory of God. I have told you many times that God often engineers our failure. Amen? Amen? He engineers trouble. Because that's how we grow. Rivet in your minds the assurances of Scripture meditate on all of the promises that God gives remember Philippians 1 6 that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus don't live in the land of Christian nirvana you know I shouldn't probably say this but I'm going to because that's me 
Sometimes I worry about Christians that are so happy all the time they never seem to have a trial. Now we should have joy. But you know, we have to fight for joy. And we have to remember every day that we're going to be facing trials and tribulations in this world. That's not a maybe. That's not an if. That is a for sure thing. And we have to remember what Jesus said, what we are to expect in this world. That we are citizens of another kingdom. So remember how Jesus teaches us to handle our circumstances. Remember that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Amen? Remember that no one nor anything in this world can rob us of the eternal joy that God puts within the heart of every believer. And remember that the momentary light affliction of this world is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So don't obsess over the right now. You want joy? We all want joy. We should have joy. Look to the results of what you're going through and rejoice in who you are. Rejoice in your salvation and rejoice in all that you have been given in Christ. And if you feel yourself being robbed of joy, fight for it by remembering everything that Jesus declared. Go back to this portion of Scripture. Remind yourself. Now, in addition to obsessing over the here and now, I think there's a second reason we often fail to have joy. And it's this. Like the disciples, there are times when we fail to ask questions. Now, this may seem like an odd point of practical application, but I believe it's incredibly relevant. I think it's a main reason the disciples failed to find joy in these critical hours of their lives. The disciples were afraid to ask questions. All through this upper room discourse, all the way on to the Garden of Gethsemane, they didn't say a word. And I think of how many times in the Gospels things might have been recorded differently had the disciples asked some questions. Isn't it true that we often fail to ask questions? We sit in Sunday school or Bible studies. We contemplate a sermon. Things spark our interest or bring to mind a question, but we don't ask. And why don't we ask? Well, we're afraid what people might think, or maybe they're going to think it's a silly question, or maybe they're going to think I'm just ignorant. I love what John MacArthur says about this. Listen to what he says. Enjoy your ignorance. It's the very foundation of your understanding. Hallelujah. You know why ignorance is good in a way? It's a good thing in the sense that it causes us to look diligently into our lives to gain understanding. It reveals where there's gaps in our thinking, gaps in our understanding. Listen, asking questions is a good thing. It points to that empty space that needs to be filled. And some of us have more empty space up there than others, right? I didn't point at anybody. Don't call me out on this. Biblically, you can learn truth that applies at the point of your ignorance. You know, the disciples were in deep sorrow over all that Jesus had told them. And had they asked more questions, they may have gained a better perspective as to the necessity and the purpose of the cross. You know, there are too many biblically illiterate professing Christians because they don't ask questions. 
And by the way, you know, the elders are having a Q&A, right? Did you see that in the bulletin? I'm not going to be up here, so fire away. All right? Think of the hardest questions you can and ask Bruce. But how many people are sitting in doctrinally unsound churches today listening to storytelling dribble without the slightest notion or conviction as to whether or not what is being said is right or wrong? People that never think to question what they're hearing. I've talked to many Roman Catholics. Any of you talk with Roman Catholics? Nobody? Okay, thank you. Why do you believe in purgatory and the deification of Mary and salvation by grace plus works? Answer, I don't know, that's what the priest says. Do you ever search the scriptures? No, no, not really. Have you ever asked a priest why you should believe in these things? Nope. Happens all the time. Or how about those in the free grace movement? Why do you believe you can deny the Lordship of Christ and simply accept Jesus as Savior? And where in the Bible do you read that you can decide to accept or reject Christ, that salvation depends as much on you as it does God? Answer, you Calvinists. (laughs) Always trying to add works to our salvation and take away our free will. Beloved, have you ever told your kids something and asked them, do you understand what I'm telling you? And you get the deer in the headlights look. And you know they're not going to ask you. Right? They don't have a clue. Listen, when it comes to the faith, there is no joy to be found if you are untethered to biblical truth. During difficult times, it is our rock-solid understanding of truth and the promises of Scripture that help us to endure that allows that joy of our salvation to well up inside of us, even when things on the outside seem to be falling apart. Listen, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and others at Pentecost, those light bulbs went on. And as believers, we're indwelt with the same Holy Spirit. He guides us into truth. So here's my charge to all of you. Listen, ask questions. Know why you believe what you believe. It's the key to maintaining joy. You fall back on those principles. You remember what the Lord has told you. We need to fight for joy. Listen, a crippled spirit is a foothold for the devil and a misrepresentation of who we are in Christ. And when the Apostle Paul exhorts us in Philippians 4 to rejoice, listen, this command was no idle chatter. It was a command to rejoice continually at all times in every circumstance. And I don't want you to miss the significance of this. Paul had been through severe trials, even to the point of death. And here is what Paul speaks to you and I today through the pages of Scripture. He says, listen guys, I have thought of everything that could possibly happen to you in the Christian life. I've been at the threshold of death. I've experienced imprisonments and beatings and stoning and shipwreck and dangers and hunger and thirst and exposure. And I can tell you that through it all, Christ was a continual presence with me. I can tell you that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. And I can tell you that Jesus will never leave you, nor will he ever forsake you. He is with you always, residing in your very heart, your very spirit, 
and he will give you and has given you a joy that can never be taken away and can never be extinguished. So for us, beloved, the issue is not that we can lose our joy, but rather are we failing to use our joy? If you're a believer in Christ, you have it. And one of the distinct qualities of our joy is that it is in itself the reassuring proof that Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. You see, our inner joy in Christ allows us to be at peace with God and to be at peace in this world, regardless of what our circumstances are. And that is a joy that is worth fighting for. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, we stand amazed at the greatness of your mercy which you have extended to us. Lord Jesus, that you would go to the cross to suffer as a man of many sorrows so that we might be able to rejoice in the very thing that brought you such pain. And we know, Lord, that the cross was the way leading to your crown in glory. And in that atoning work, it was the way that led to our salvation. And Lord, we know that at your ascension, you promised your disciples that in going away, you would send the great comforter, the Holy Spirit, to guide them into truth, to reassure them of the joy that would come as they realized the full import of what you came to accomplish on earth. And so it is for all believers in Christ. We are given your spirit as reassuring proof that you will never leave us nor forsake us. In that we can rejoice. And we know that you are preparing eternal joy for us as citizens of your heavenly kingdom. And thus, Lord, we pray for joy, we wait for joy, we long for joy as we contemplate the forgiveness of sin and our future unspotted state in glory. And so, Lord, we pray that daily you would fill us with that inner joy that's found only in Christ, that joy that allows us to be at peace with God and at peace in the world regardless of our circumstances. And we thank you and praise you for that in Christ's name. Amen.